You're listening to the LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the LaunchCast. 37 episodes. Can you believe it? Still goosebumps under here. Trust me. We got a great one today. It is episode 137. We call this the Lean Mean Entrepreneur Machine. You're going to find out why in a minute. But first, as always, it's our intro. It's the Launch Dad himself bringing you your favorite podcast on the planet. Leadership, business, life, growth. Come on, you know the deal, guys. As the beat drops. Into the black hole. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the LaunchCast. It is another Monday morning here at 6 a.m. I know that's when you're downloading this. Every single Monday morning at 6 a.m. on all podcast platforms. Uh, I'm excited this week. I know last week we did the interview the day we came home from the hospital with my daughter, which was uh, incredible. We did the Justice for Jason interview. Uh, a lot of good feedback from you guys on that and on the cause. Uh, so, so keep following that GoFundMe that we had sent out last week. But I'm excited this week. We are back to another business interview. This is my bread and butter here. We're talking leadership on episode 137 with my guest. Let me bring him on screen here. There we go. Brant Cooper, everybody. Thank you so much for being here, Brant. George, thanks for having me, man. Now that is an intro. Storm is coming, <laughs> but we're all prepared, right? Nice. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Uh, let me do let me do the bio here, guys. So Brant Cooper. Brant is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Entrepreneur, and CEO of Moves the Needle. With over two decades of expertise helping companies bring innovative products to market, he blends design thinking, lean methodology to ignite entrepreneurial action within large organizations. He has experienced monumental milestones such as IPOs, acquisitions, rapid growth, and crushing failure. He serves as a keynote speaker, advisor to entrepreneurs, accelerators, and corporate leaders, and in his current venture, Moves the Needle, empowers organizations to be closer to customers, move faster, and act bolder. Man, that's a mouthful of a, 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 of a bio, Brant. <laughs> did I get enough buzzwords in there? You did. I think you did. All of them are in there. Um, let, let's kick it off, man. I'm going to start this the way we kick off every single interview. Brant, are you a leader? Yes, I'm a leader. Talk to me about that. What is your definition of a leader? The definition of a leader to me is uh, empowering others to be all that they can be. Uh, so inside of my own company, you know, there's a there's a, a Gary Ridge, CEO of uh, WD40 here in San Diego, wrote a book, and I don't even remember the title of the book, but I remember his subtitle. 
And the subtitle is, don't measure my performance, teach me how to get an A. And I really love that because we are obsessed with, you know, KPIs and OKRs and measuring performance. And there's a, you know, startup mythology around, you know, only hire A players. And if anybody's looked at a bell curve, you know how many A players there are out in the world. The responsibility of a leadership is to create A players. It's teach people how to get an A. And I think that's, it's just a great definition of leadership in my yeah, I love that, Brent. So uh, I want to do this interview a little bit different. I know we usually go through a chronology of, of our guest lives. We do this Howard Stern style usually. We start at, the, at, at baby and we come to today, right? But I'm so, so enamored by the work that you do. Um, I don't know what, what kind of background they gave you on me before uh, KitCaster hooked up this interview, but um, I own a management consulting firm. So this is, I, I do corporate turnaround for a living. This is just my way of talking about the leader that I've learned within uh, my industry and my journey and my life and and sort of teaching it to others. But, um, you know, this methodology that you talk about um, within working with organizations, it's so important for people to realize that man, like the gift is there already. It's, it's a matter of bringing it out of people, isn't it? That's it's, you're spot on. I, I hear often like from corporate innovators, you know, oh, I need leadership bought in or how do I get leaders to buy in or, uh, you know, leaders aren't bought into whatever it is they're trying to do. And and I think that that's actually fundamentally wrong. So it's 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 sort of funny that maybe I just naturally have, you know, empathy for leaders, but actually teaching people how to get empathy for leaders is how you get leaders on your side. And from the other side, you teach leaders how to get empathy and suddenly people can talk to each other and you're, you're, you're fur way, way further down the path. Um, but there's this, it's the, the ability is already there. And a matter yeah. of fact, I, I even tell people, you don't need to bring me in here. Here's your tools. You have this, you need to, unleash the power that you already have within and uh you know i want them to bring me in anyway believe me <laughs> but, but it isn't really about what's between my ears right i'm actually not teaching them anything unleashing what they already have yeah so so i, I want to talk to you a little bit about um a discovery that I made super early on when I started my company, and I'd love to get your take on this. So, you know, management consulting firm, right? Um, the expectation from the employees is that you're coming into clean house, right? You're coming into clean house, completely change, uh, uh, you know, reinvent the wheel, completely change how they've been running their organization and bring new methodologies and run everything off of an analysis and uh, analysis and KPIs and all that, right? Um, I made a discovery very early on at a small client that I was consulting for where I took this approach of interviewing every single employee in that company. And so they were small enough where it was about 40 people where we could get it done. And I'm talking from like C-level down to like security guards. And that was the point where I discovered after speaking to everybody that man, these people know the inner runnings of this company better than the C-level people, better than the managers, and have ideas that can work. Yeah, not all of them are going to work. I get it. Um, but just opening up that dialogue, and it was tough because it was almost like a psychological battle between management and uh, and the rest of the staff while we were going through it. But once we got past that hump, it taught me exactly what you said. 
I'm the tool. I'm bringing the tools and resources. You know, I'll come in and 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 I'm sure you've experienced this where people you'll leave and people think, "Man, you where did you learn all this? You're like the best thing that happened to our business ever." And it's like, "I don't know shit. You guys knew it. I just I just asked you to tell me how to fix the problem and you paid me a lot of money to do that." You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's so much of it is just around communication. It's interesting. I mean, and to be honest, I struggle with it even inside my own company. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I do a lot of writing and so words are important to me. And, and I think, you know, what I need to do is take people at their word. And it's just extraordinary to me that generally people have a tough time meaning what they say and saying what they mean. Yeah. And if you sort of just realize that and work with people and learn to listen better and help, you know, sort of pair it back. And, you know, there's a bunch of techniques to try to get the communication to actually happen uh, despite the difficulties with meeting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, so so let's take it back a little. I want to hear about uh, the journey to to where you are now. Um, talk to me about, you know, I, the earliest thing I could find. I love doing the show research. Uh ourselves. I don't like doing the pre-interviews because I love to see what we can find and sort of uh, have discussions around that. But the earliest thing I could find on you is that UC Davis, right, with a degree in economics, uh, with a mathematics emphasis. What about before then, man? What was what was life like growing up for Brent? Yeah. So, uh, so my dad was a, a Navy man. So he was a, a Navy pilot. Uh, and uh, was stationed in uh, Coronado here in San Diego uh, at, at, you know, early in his career and, you know, would drive a little convertible sports car up the coast into La Jolla uh, where my mom lived. So my mom was a waitress at some pub there, I think. Uh, <laughs> and it was it's sort of a classic Navy officer meets La Jolla socialite story in San Diego, <laughs> um, you know, quite a long time ago. Um, but that was sort of the beginning. So, you know, being a Navy brat, I was one of those kids that lived in a bunch of different places, mostly all in California. So I was born in Monterey, um, lived in San Diego a couple times, lived out in the desert where there's a Naval Weapons Center, and then back in San Diego for uh, for high school. So that I consider it my hometown. I'm in Encinitas now. Um, but we moved all over the place. I had two brothers and, and a sister and you know, dogs and cats. And I lived a very, you know, a very stable uh, and a privileged life. We were not wealthy, but we were never, you know, left wanting. Sure. And I had, and I had two loving uh, parents that, uh, that stayed together. So I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm blessed and, and, and privileged in that way. And it definitely has a, has an influence on my take in the world and what my role ought to be in a world uh, like that. Um, but so, yeah, that was pretty much the life, you know, I, I didn't live at the beach, but we, you know, took the 20 minute drive in our own versions of my dad's sports cars and, and surfboards in the back. And, you know, we'd kind of surf up and down the coast. And even though we were the inlanders and, you know, I don't know, it was uh, long blonde hair, tan, you know, pre skin cancer back in those <laughs> days. But, yeah. Uh, 
uh yeah it was uh it was you know challenging in some ways to uh you know to move around that much but i also think that it's it's sort of reflected in then my education at uc davis and then in my different job roles sort of a broad-based experience i would you know, a lot of different and you know back in the, the the day you were supposed to focus on one thing and be an expert in one thing and i was completely the opposite and i think the way the world is now being able to have experience in a bunch of different areas is actually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was the goal out of, out of college Brant? Well, so, uh, <laughs> I majored in economics. It sounds impressive economics with an emphasis in mathematics. I chose uh, economics because it had the fewest required number of units. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so I was able to take a little bit of everything. So I took sociology, psychology, history, chemistry, calculus, uh, sociology, you know, just uh, uh, electrical and computer engineering. So software programming using way back in the day, Pascal and Fortran. So boy, man, I'm really dating myself. But anyway, (laughs) it was a little bit of everything. And so I did not go to college to get a job. I got, I, I went to college to, well, to party, but also to, you know, learn a bunch of different things. Um, and so I, I, I sort of bummed around for a year and then I got a job, uh, through my dad's, you know, he was post Navy at that time, but sure. had, uh, a lot of contracting. Uh, so I, I, I joined as a junior consultant in a, uh, consulting firm back in Washington, DC. So I lived back in DC for a couple of years. I lasted one year, dropped out and wrote the great American novel Yes, that was not it was American, but it was not great. Uh, you know, so clearly there are some geniuses in the world that in your 20s, you can actually rate, write an amazing, great novel. But to me, you know, mine was sort of trite and sophomoric and, and more like what an average 20-year-old can create. You know, you need to live a little bit more before you actually can write a novel that matters. Um, but, you know, that actually also set set the tone in the sense that you know, kind of always having faith in yourself that you're going to be able to figure it out. I was able to like, well, no, forget it. I don't like working nine to five. I'm going to drop out. And now I'm going to go work in a, in a book bookstore and um, drink cheap wine and write a novel. So that's what I did. <laughs> so at, at what point, um, you know, uh, past this process, did that entrepreneurial spirit come into play for you? Yeah, well, I think it's already there, right? It's already nascent, the fact that you can just sort of go out on your own. So I, I wasn't really, I didn't know what was up after I was done with the novel. And, you know, back in those days, it was not easy to even reach out to agents or publications. Everything was done by snail mail. Sure. Um, and so I did a little bit of that, but I didn't really try very hard. And I, you know, I got in my pickup truck and spent three or four months crossing the country and ended up in the Bay area, uh, met my, uh, soon or not even soon at that point, but my to be wife, um, I'm divorced now, by the way, but, uh, my, my to be wife at that time in San Francisco and started a whole new life there and really joined companies. I ended up being kind of the computer guy at a couple more consulting companies before I leveraged that to get into the startup scene. So, 97 joined my first startup yeah and that was actually an exercise in entrepreneurialism too so i'm not on my own but this is my first real indication of what a tech startup is like 
And all of the early employees, to be honest, are entrepreneurial. Um, I ended up joining that. My journey towards entrepreneurialism was based upon the fact that I was a horrible employee. And I was a horrible employee because I didn't do what my managers told me to do. Yeah. Because I felt like I knew how to do it better. And, and so I was tossed around like a hot potato in all of the jobs I ever had because nobody, I was unmanageable. Well, so then you go and you bring that into a startup and you're responsible for your area and you wear multiple hats and it's all about hustle and it's about driving impact. Well, that's the energy that feeds creative people yeah. who are entrepreneurial. And so that's what launched me into that. And then it was, I don't know, it was another 10 years, I think, before I actually went out totally on my own. I tried a couple of things. That's really where the crushing failures come in, are, are mostly my own endeavors. But man, you learn so much from the failures. I would never, I wouldn't change a thing, to be honest. Well, that's the, that's the next point that I wanted to get into. And I, and I love that you talked about being uh, a bad employee, right, uh, and unmanageable. Um I think that, you know, for, for those that listen to this show on a regular basis, uh, I, I always talk about how I love the fact that now uh, when I consult for an organization, let's say on operations, that I do such a good job of it or doing management training because I was the worst manager <laughs> when I started managing early in my career. I was the worst. And, and it is possible, right, uh, and I hope you agree with this, that it's really – possible to be super good at what you do but bad at working for somebody doing it right yeah it's totally right i mean it actually gets back to one of the points i started out with you know teaching people how to be in a players or the mythology around hiring a players and so i in one of my talks i'll 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 ask the question well was i an a player and and if you hire somebody that's supposedly an A player, like a, a software engineer who is entrepreneurial and just writes mad code, and you, and and maybe she's early in in a startup and just just rocks it, and then the startup succeeds, and suddenly she finds that she's got three or four layers of management on top, and she hates it because it's not the environment, it's not the milieu where she thrives in, and then you ask the question, well, is she? She was an A player before, but she's not an A player now. As a leader, am I putting people into the right position where they can thrive, where they can be where they're the best? That's our responsibility. Right, right, for sure. Um, going back for a second. So uh, you mentioned it before, but in your media kit, I noticed that one line that says he has experienced monumental milestones such as IPO, blah, blah, blah. Um, and crushing failure. And I love that you're so honest about talking about that. Um, why is it important that entrepreneurs know both sides of the coin of fa the failures and the successes? Yeah, I think that the, you know, human beings are failure machines. It's what we actually do. That's how we learn, you know, from the moments, you know, when you're, when your new, your new baby just first tries to walk going to fall down, right? Yeah. First learns to talk, first learns to ride the bike. As adults, you know, first time we try to find a life partner, you know, we, yeah. we fail. I mean, it's what we do. It's Guilty. wired into us. Guilty. It's our DNA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's multiple tries, yeah. you know. Uh, but it's wired into us. And so we're, it, that sort of, it's sort of, you know, 
forced out of us, right? The way the schools are run and, you know, all of these other things, we don't have to go too far into that, but yeah, uh, yeah. we really, we really sort of breed out the, we weed out, we crush out this ability to fail and, and be okay with it. And yet it's those failures that that's how we learn. And so I think that I actually don't wish crushing failure on anyone. And what I teach is how to learn, how to fail small so that you don't fail big. Right. But I do think, you know, to be honest, George, like the people that get what I teach the best are those that have had the crushing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I get that. it's hard to it's hard to know when you succeed. It's actually hard to know what part of what you did was that caused the success. And so, like a lot of first time entrepreneurs who succeed, believe it was like they believe in the myth of the visionary. They believe that it was all because of them, and then they go out again, and they, and then they suffer the crushing failure. Whereas if you suffer the crushing failure first, and you do any sort of retrospective and and, and you know have some level of self awareness, you can kind of figure out like. Well, actually, I was just wrong on all these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what I love about entrepreneurship as compared to, to corporate is that, yeah, of course, you could have those crushing failures and you fail much, fall much harder than you would in a corporate world at times, right? Um, but when you have those successes as an entrepreneur, you know, and you could really spread your wings and do your thing, man, is it like, uh, like it's sky's the limit. Right when yeah. uh, in terms of growth, and so I know you have a lot of um, insight on this specifically. Talk to me about corporate executives and why they need to think like entrepreneurs. Yeah, so I think that the you know doing this now for a good ten years, what I've come to realize is that the the frame where this sits best, in my opinion, is around the concept of uncertainty. And so if you think about a large enterprise, for the most part, they have in their core business have relatively little uncertainty. They figured out the market. They figured out what products to sell to that market. They figured out how to add features that customers want. They understand how to talk to their customers. Most of this is they know how to distribute. They know how to sell. They know how to market. So most of this is figured out. So there's relatively little uncertainty. Whereas if you're working with an innovation group and they're supposed to go do breakthrough innovation, or if you're in a startup, you're actually, you face massive amounts of uncertainty. And so in the startup, we naturally work differently in the face of this uncertainty because we don't have a plan to execute on. And so what we're trying to do is develop that plan. We're trying to develop the blueprint of known things that we can execute on. And so that's the idea in a startup. I've got all of these unknowns. I'm going to go learn what works. I'm going to move those into the known pile and I'm going to hire people to execute what I've learned. Right. That's how you grow. Right. Well, so in reality, there's uncertainty that exists all across a company. It's a continuum, not this binary known versus unknown. So in the corporate world, how am I going to hit my numbers this year? How am I going to hit my numbers next year? How am I going to replace the declining revenues of this product two or three years down the road. And so there's this, there's a level of uncertainty everywhere. And so in all of those uncertainty areas, we need to work differently. We need to work in that entrepreneurial way. And so that's where that mindset needs to come into leadership. They need to figure out and admit when they don't know, and then they have to lead as well as operate themselves differently in that unknown. And so then they have to learn how to balance that work, that execution versus that learning 
all across the continuum, all across the business. And, uh, and, and for today, as well as reaching uh, into the future. And so, again, the hook is this uncertainty part. We have to be able to admit uncertainty, and then we have to, we have to work differently to overcome that. Yeah. Love that, man. Love that. Um, well, and so, so the pandemic really drives that home. Right. Oh, for sure. So I, I talk, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you've experienced this too. You talk to leaders and they're like, well, we just have to buckle down. You know, we have to go back to what we know because this is the way we're going to sur- survive um, these turbulent times of the pandemic. And I asked them, well, what do you know? What do you still know? You're, you're, the small businesses that you sell to are going out of business. Your consumers don't have budget anymore. They can't spend the money. Even large enterprises are sitting on their budgets. What do you know? anymore about your existing market. So there's massive amounts of uncertainty today. And if you're just buckling down, if you're just going to go execute again, you're executing within the unknown and you will fail. And so we have to go back into learning mode in a way bigger way than even six, you know, nine months ago. Yeah. And the the pandemic is a great segue into what I wanted to talk about next. Um, You know, when you talk about not just buckling down and sort of going in there and and changing it up, right? Um, Your your description on your Twitter literally says, pardon the disruption. Now, disruption, disrupting, disrupt, such a buzzword, right? But when used in terms of execution and actually disrupting shit, right, and changing the game, man, have some people had crazy, crazy success in this. I, I've done a TED Talk on this. My, my first TED Talk was called The Impact of Innovation Via Disruption. Talk to me for a minute about the concept of disruption, especially uh, today, right, in, in, in these times of pandemic and, and what businesses are going through. Yeah, you know, it is a buzzword. And what's funny, though, is that I want people to sort of embrace it. And, and disruption, kind of like innovation itself, is, a, oh, well, that's all somebody else's business. And I think that what's important, especially for entrepreneurs to understand, is the pandemic is representative of the disruption. It's not the cause of the disruption that I'm talking about. The fundamental disruption is that the structure, processes, the way we manage people inside of our companies is based upon the industrial age. It's an extension of the assembly line. It was all built up and you go read your, you know, it's like the four P's in the MBA. You go read the management books. That's how you build an industrial age company. We're not in the industrial age anymore. We're in whatever you call this digital age or information age. And I fundamentally believe the very structure of our organizations is going to change. Companies, startups, education, government, nonprofits, it's all going to change. Because the behavior that we need to, to execute on, the behavior that we need to exemplify inside of all of those institutions is different during the digital age than it was in the industrial age. And by restructuring, we'll get the behavior that comes out of the structure because that's what happens now. We're, we're, we're built, we've built these silos and only some of them are allowed to talk to customers. And so it should be no surprise that we're not really in tune with our customers and that we can't take in new information and change our plans and that we move too slowly. It's because the structure causes that. So we have to rethink the structure and it, to produce the behavior that we want to see. And so this is disruption. It's disruption not only from a technological point of view or new sales or new uh, products or services that change a market fundamentally. 
it's it's disruption of our core way of operating businesses. And so people have to embrace that word that word and look at themselves as individuals, but also as their own companies and go, how do I disrupt our normal business in order to deal with the new reality? And that's why I try to embrace that word. And I call it disruption poetry even because people feel disrupted. They can feel it inside of them, but they don't necessarily know why. They can't necessarily put all of the, you know, connect all of the dots. And, and I think that the entrepreneurs that can connect those dots, and this is both inside of large corporates and in and, and smaller businesses, those that can connect the dots and see where we're going, right? You know, past the hockey puck to where people are skating now. If we see it, we can start preparing our businesses for it now and we're going to get there first and that's going to be your competitive advantage. I fundamentally believe it. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by the Leadership Experience. Hosted by yours truly, the launch dad himself, George Andriopoulos, CEO of Launchpad 516 Media Convergence, coach at the Leadership Experience and Podcast Experience, public speaker. You know the deal. You know me. I'm going to start talking about the class. Guys, this is an intentional, unconventional leadership journey via a coaching masterclass. It is six weeks of intense work on your leadership and bringing that leadership out to your platform. Unconventional journeys, the mission statement, which by the way is the end goal, building the mission statement, leadership theory, inspiration theory, the balance phenomenon. We handle it all. Now the add on tracks, how you execute. Four available tracks, public thought leader track, that's for public speakers, writers, social activists, social influencers. That's how you take your leadership to the stage, to the page, everywhere. The entrepreneur track for business owners and aspiring business owners. The career leader track for professionals looking to bring their leadership to a new level. And the podcast experience, building your own podcast start to finish. All the tech specs, all the leadership stuff, bringing your message to the people and more. Interview 101, voice 101, the whole deal. It is a killer class. Hit me up about that. Now, what's new? We have some self-paced online stuff that's happening in mid-August. There will be a leadership in organizational management certification available. There will be a podcast self-paced course. We have so much going on. TheLeadershipExp.com. Book it. PM me for details. We have some workshops coming up. Guys, activate your leadership now. TheLeadershipExp.com. Music's over, but the class is just getting started. I love giving simple examples, Brent, of um, uh, of the concepts that we talk about here on the LaunchCast. Our goal um, for our audience is for somebody to not only hear a story like yours, um, you know, where you came from, where you are now, and and learn some things and go, oh, maybe, you know, I went through something like that. Maybe I could be a leader too. But today we're talking about business. We're talking about disruption uh, within a setting like today, the pandemic. And so I'd love for a business owner that is having a tough time out there right now to hear this and go, hey, maybe I don't have to run my business as I see, you know, the, the, the past 30 years I've been running it. That's the model. Maybe I have to change it up in order to survive this. Um, we, we have a client, right? We have a client that's a, um, a hospitality group. They own a few restaurants. Great, great company. They they run some nice high-end places. They know what they're doing, right? Really great restaurants. And so 
one of their restaurants um, that's in one town, they decided to open up a new location about 20 miles away, and it was a much higher-end version. It was a, a, a went from just a family-style Italian place to now a, a, an Italian steakhouse. Um, their own property now, the whole deal, right? And they opened up about a month before the pandemic hit, and they put a ton of money into this place, bought the property, wow. the whole deal. Um, and so there was fear. Not only from the new place, but now they're, the the money makers are are shut down, right? Um, and there's rules around here in New York, you know, uh, no uh, only takeout and get, can't be open past eight o'clock. We sat down with them and said, "How can we get through this? How can we, how can we not be the typical restaurant? What can we do that's not like the other restaurants right now? And I have to give credit to them because they really came up with all the ideas. We just helped them implement. But you're talking about a high-end Italian steakhouse that rented an outdoor pizza oven. And every weekend, they did drive-through artisanal pizzas and heroes. No call ahead that's drive-through. Awesome. Right? Once that hit and they had a, a bigger budget, they built a movie screen in their huge parking lot. They started doing drive-in movies twice a week. Right, hundred dollars per for a ticket. It's it's uh, credit towards food. You know, minimum spend of a hundred dollars. Boom. Now you're talking about like four nights a week that they're they know a guaranteed revenue is coming in that they're killing on top of the takeout on top of everything else, and they thrived during this pandemic so much that now that everything's open sort of normally they're still at a lower capacity. But I got a text the other day from the owner saying. I just want to thank you for all the help during this time. Everything we did during the pandemic has now just completely brought us through the roof in terms of what we're doing in our normal business. And it's because, and I did nothing, by the way, this isn't a pitch for me. They did it all. They did it all. They had the ideas. We just helped them implement a little bit and look what it turned into now. They changed their business model, you know? And That's for, just an incredible story. Right? I absolutely love that. I think that there's a bunch of there's a bunch of uh, you know principles in there that uh, that I talk about. Right. So there's there's sort of understanding what the circumstances that their customers are in. So it's not just you know they're not just whining about their current situation. They're thinking like, well, let's imagine who our customer is and what their life is like, and they can't get out of their home, and and you know they. They're probably watching a lot of TV and a lot of movies, but they're doing it by themselves and, and they're not they're not able to socialize. So they are getting empathy for their customers. Yeah. right? And then, you know, I find that most companies like the they all have great ideas. Ideas are a, literally ideas are a dime a dozen. I mean, they're I guess it's not literally it's figuratively, but they really are inexpensive. There's big organizations, small organizations. There's tons of ideas. They just don't know how to test them or how to actualize them. And so the, the, the ideas around rapid experimentation is, okay, well, what needs to be true for this to work? And how can we run an experiment that validates that people might be willing to do this, might be willing to come to this, this drive-in, mini drive-in theater? Yeah. And so you can start running experiments and producing data that validates that this is, hey, a pretty good idea. And so that idea, you know, like cream rises to the top. And, uh, and so I think that's just brilliant. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs go like, listen, I have all of these great ideas, but there's so much I need to get done in my day-to-day -day business that I just don't have time. I don't know how to go and do those things. And this is way, this is how like agile practices can benefit all entrepreneurs. 
You just have to like map out all of the things that you have to do. Remove one, put in some experiment, put in some empathy, some learning exercise in the place of that one. And now you're starting to open the gates towards finding some other product service activity out there that might move the needle beyond your expectations. You have to just run those experiments that are outside of your local maximum to see if there's something out there that really just changes the game. But you never find that if you stick with trying to, you know, improve your existing. And so it's, it's building learning processes into your, into your, uh, your daily work. Yeah, absolutely. And Brent, I've watched all of your stuff that you have out there. Uh, I started reading um, The Lean Entrepreneur. I haven't gotten a chance to finish it yet. The baby, come on. That would have been done, but this baby came out of <laughs> no nowhere. Um, no but yeah, you know, and that's why I wanted to tell that story about that restaurant group because I know this is that mindset. This is the ideology that you guys have, uh, you know, with your organization. Um, the other side of disruption, though, I want to talk about for a minute there is some negativity surrounding disruption. So uh, my question is, does, does disruption sometimes bring uncertainty that isn't welcome in innovation? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I wrestle with that because I am in favor of, well, listen, we can't, we can't stop technology evolution. We can't stop innovation. We can't stop disruption it's just what human beings do again it's just and so i think that actually in a in a in a highly functional society you have the means of transitioning people that are adversely affected by this disruption um and so i think that there is a a society responsibility to ease the burden and frankly uh, we're wealthy enough to do it, and those that are successful at disrupting are wealthy enough to do it, and and we should just make that part of uh, part of uh, of the game. It doesn't adversely affect future innovation, and so we should just we should be leaders in the world in that regard, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, love that. Uh, I want to mention a few more things from the resume here, Brent. Um, and so, New York Times bestselling author of the Lean Entrepreneur co-author. Um, Guys, check that out. Get that. I started reading this uh, last week before my daughter Joanna rudely interrupted me. Um, authored The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, the first purpose-written book to discuss lean startup and customer development concepts. Um, myth of the Visionary. I've watched that. TEDx, America's Finest City, right? He's a fellow TEDxer, this guy. Loved that talk. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that talk because we do have a lot of uh, a lot of people in the TED community that listen to this podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's partly what we've discussed, though I think that there's a a media narrative around how entrepreneurship uh, uh, is supposed to work in this idea of the eureka moment. And, uh, and so I try to break that down a little bit, and I think it's important for those that are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs uh, you, you know, we should we should we should think about that a little bit. And I love to tell the stories of, for example, uh, Thomas Edison. Right. So every every piece of uh, you know what piece of bad clip art represents the eureka moment. Light bulb. Well, it's yeah, <laughs> it's light bulb, right? It's in every uh, innovation uh, uh, PowerPoint, right? 
And so the idea is that supposedly Thomas Edison had this brilliant idea of the light bulb. And, and so that's why the light bulb represents brilliant ideas. Uh, when in fact, uh, when Thomas Edison went to go and patent the light bulb, the, the patent already existed. So he actually did not invent the light bulb. And what he did is, is he ran hundreds of experiments to try to figure out what the right material was to use as the filament of the light bulb to make the, the light bulb marketable. Yeah. And then he actually went out and created the market for the light bulb. And that was, believe me, that's still genius. It's just not the eureka moment idea of, of entrepreneurship. And, and I tell the story of, of Steve Jobs, who is also usually held up as being, you know, sort of quintessential uh, visionary. And, and I think that, you know, I, I think about the iPhone and, and, you know, it's brilliant. The first iPhone, I just absolutely loved it beginning. It's hard to say that there was anything that was technologically uh, breakthrough innovation about the iPhone. Uh, all of the components were used in different places before and smartphones existed before that. What actually disrupted the market was opening up the app store to third party developers. Steve Jobs was opposed to opening up the app store to third party developers. The first full year went by without it being open. And it was because Steve Jobs refused to open it. And yet the market pulled it out of him. People were literally hacking into the app store in order to get their apps up there. And then he relented. So in, in that sense, again, I believe he was a genius. But what he was willing to do is listen to the market and change the ideas that he had, not that he had had this eureka moment and then had to go and see that product through. And so so my TED talk was really about this phenomenon. Not only was it a little bit about my own personal journey, about having to keep, I have to remind myself to wake up and go and make the change that you want to see, right? That's fundamentally what entrepreneurs need to do and want to do. They're not about making wealth comes through the success of you changing what you want to change. And, uh, and, and again, I think that both of those examples, those guys can be called visionaries. I'm fine with it. They can be called geniuses, but it's not because of the Eureka moment. It's because of the level of effort they put into making the change they wanted to see in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Love that brand. Um, so let's move on. 2013, you founded, uh, moves the needle which brings an entrepreneurial spirit to the enterprise moves. The needle ignites entrepreneurial action within organizations by educating, enabling and empowering people to be closer to the customer, move faster and act bolder, leveraging design thinking and lean startup principles tailored for the enterprise MTN's lean innovation, boot camps, accelerated programs and strategic advising create immediate and lasting impact. Tell us more about moves the needle. Well, so, you know, this has been a journey too. When we first wrote The Entrepreneur's Guide to Customer Development, we thought all of these principles for, were for Silicon Valley tech startups only. We totally were bought into the go big, go home mentality. Ten years later, uh, I believe it's for everybody. It's for small businesses. It's for startups. And it is required inside large enterprises. And it really is, again, based upon this need that I discussed uh, to re to face down uncertainty wherever it exists. And so that's what Moves the Needle does. We started off with simple workshops. They, they sort of evolved into what we, we, our own version of a design sprint. 
Um, then we did whole accelerator programs for these. And then we had to start getting up into the leadership. You know, so like management consultant people like yourselves can like are are so valuable and they operate often at a strategic level that we actually do not operate in. And what a lot of great leadership consultants do is teach this new behavior to leaders, things like empathy and vulnerability and admitting that they don't know and being able to look at the world and their employees in slightly different ways. The problem is, is inside of large enterprises, they often struggle on how to apply that. Where do they apply it? And so we sort of feel like we bring in this program, which is based upon creating new value in the world, Mm -hmm. where they can apply those skills immediately to these teams, these, you know, agile teams in this sort of accelerator format. And we can drive immediate impact. Like there are results that happen very quickly. And and it, it's all based upon the, t- the sort of challenges that are undertaken. But you can tackle internal process issues. You can, you can challenge uh, the fact that your design group is not getting along or not effectively working with the manufacturing group. You can look at HR that wants to roll out a new performance management system, but you treat them like startup entrepreneurs and they need to go learn before they do it. Um, and you can, of course, do product-facing changes, both small in terms of you know, adding new features and those sort of things to really big changes like digital transformation. It really runs the full gamut. Um, And so not all of it is immediate impact, but you can choose projects that have immediate impact and your return is is immediate. And, And to be honest, one of the most fundamental impacts after going through one of these programs is that the workers go, the employees say, I never want to go back to the way I was working before. Yeah, yeah. And the leaders say the same thing because you've just unleashed so much creativity and so much inspiration. People want to come to work. Listen, human beings want to live meaningful lives. They want to contribute to their companies. They want to contribute to society. And, and I fundamentally believe that if you give smart people a wicked problem and you empower them to go and figure out and solve that problem and the right metrics to hold them accountable – they will solve the problem eventually. They yeah. will go and do it. We have to get out of their way. So we provide the structure, the space. And again, the how we hold them accountable, the metrics are super important and it's really hard and we don't do it very well. But if you get the right metrics and you get out of the way, they will solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Ugh. Man, how have we not met before? I love talking shop with people like you. <laughs> I really do. It's just uh, I love the the heightened, you know, the enlightenment in business uh, that comes from understanding that um, we could figure this shit out, right? Like we could figure this shit out ourselves. Hey, you know, it's so true. And actually, I do have another uh, book uh, book underway. Uh, it, the Hachette uh, book group there in New York is going to publish it. Okay. And it really is about bringing this in to leadership inside of these large enterprises because listen you you kicked off this conversation around the fact that people already have this in them and these corporations actually already have this ability in them too and i am i am fundamentally i'm a capitalist capitalism has drived driven so much value in the world yeah um but we've sort of lost our way and we're focused too much on wealth creation And what we have to do is return to this idea of creating value for human beings in the world. And you know what one of the 
one of the results of focusing on creating value is wealth. I mean, it's it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct, right? Of solving problems. So let's get back to solving problems, and 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 the entrepreneurs and even the big corporations continue to generate wealth. That is the that is the just reward of the very difficult part of entrepreneurship. There's no doubt about it. But I rarely do I meet entrepreneurs whose main goal is wealth creation. Their main goal is to change the world in some positive way. And we can get corporations back to that ethos as well. But we also just need to we need to allow entrepreneurs to create the structure and the culture of their company that is not like just the wealth generators. Yeah, uh, I, I'd love to have you on again one day just to talk about the 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 journey really getting here, even mindset. Um, I, I talk about this on the show all of the time. I sort of put my career into two acts, right? Act one and act two, which will hopefully go on forever. But um, act one of my career was very successful in what I did when I was in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but it was all based around wealth, right? And and monetary success and status and all that. And man, did I fall hard. Like I fell so hard and when i hit rock bottom in my career and sort of you know was left at a point where i was in the middle of a divorce and had to reassess everything and you go man you know i want to do this the right way and when i focused on just doing the thing when i focused on the joy that i got out of business um the joy that i got out of helping others bring value to them that's when the byproduct came that's when the actual success and wealth came from all of it it was really simple to understand. And you look at yourself and go, man, I wish I could kick myself in the ass 15 years ago. But, you know, you have to I, learn very it. Sim very similar journey here, man. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe it gets back to the other thing that we said early on is you need the crushing failure to see the success. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think that there's a generation of young people that are going towards the, the right mindset from, from the get-go. Uh, but they need a lot of help, too. And, and uh and you know, I think it takes it takes this generation of people that have been through this uh, the ups and downs to, you know, to help the the next generation as well as just the existing other entrepreneurs to see this other side. And it's a it's a it's it's a feel it's a feel good side to be honest. It's it's you know I think that we all live more uh, satisfying lives being over there. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and that kind of that's a great uh, segue into the final question before we jump into the big three. Um, I, I see the same thing, and I see the people, the younger people going into business now. They are of the mindset that took me so many years to get to. They are empathetic people. Um, they're not necessarily wealth driven, right? And so it's a it's a really enlightened place to be for such a young age. But now you throw in the current business climate, everything that has shifted because of the pandemic and really just technology in and of itself. So all that being said, this major shift, this new uh, type of uh, workforce that's coming in, what does business look like going forward? Yeah, so I think that uh, we, we touched on agile a little bit. I think that the unit inside of a business is going to stop being an individual. It's going to be the team. And, uh, and, and again, I actually think the pandemic drives this home. I tell leaders that if they're managing people at, who are working out of their homes that aren't on teams, form a team. Form an ad hoc team, put them all on it, even if they're not working on the same thing. 
have them practice basic agile principles like you know daily stand-ups, retrospectives, sprint planning, which is when they commit to what they're working on during over some duration, and have them get on regular video calls, not where that's a meeting, but where they're just working with everybody's video on. And I tell these leaders that in my opinion, they will hold each other accountable way more than managers trying to stay on top of these workers. Yeah. And so I think that the fundamental change is going to come and we're already seeing signs of it, that agile is the unit of work, the agile team, and we're measuring their performance based upon the impact they're driving, not based upon how many times they're doing some task over and over again. Forget the KPIs, forget the OKRs. We know how to do that, I think, intuitively. We all know the impact that we want to have, the outcome. We want billions of dollars and and happy customers and, and all the rest, right? So we have to measure these teams based upon their progress towards achieving the desired outcomes. And it's, again, it's difficult, but there's ways. I have a, a framework, Value Stream Discovery, that, that teaches how to get to those metrics. And that's going to be the fundamental unit of the company. And it doesn't mean that there's no hierarchy. We have to layer over that, this team of team uh, uh, concept. And then maybe there's an, a layer over that to make sure that the the broader context of the company responsibility and the company products are have a cohesive, you know, they're glued together in a way that's that's achieving the strategic priorities of the company. Yeah. And and so it's a simplified structure. It's a structure that produces uh, creative, inspired workers to go and find new value in the world. Um, it makes them closer to their customers makes them agile. They can take in new information and change their plans based upon new information if necessary, and they move faster. And that's just required in, the, in this world. And so I, we're seeing all sorts of signs in it, this rise of the team mentality and agile in general for the whole company. Um, so I think that's the future of business for sure. Love it. Love it. Guys, time for the big three. The big three from the launch cast. You're going to give us your top three quick, concise answers on all these. Ready? Okay. All right. Let's start simple. You're, you're a Navy brat. You seem well-traveled, right? Three favorite places in the world. Oh, uh, so I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, uh, Zurich, Switzerland. I'm going to say, uh, Amsterdam. And I'm going to say Santiago, Chile. There we go. All right. Uh, let's get into leadership now. Talk. Give me your, we'll say the three uh, three biggest traits in a leader for you. Yeah. So I was going to say walk the talk, but I'm not sure that that's a trait. I think actually self-awareness, mm-hmm. the ability to admit when they're wrong or when they don't know. Uh, and I don't know how to say this in a trait, but they need to know, like leading from behind is kind of a cliche. You actually need to know when to lead from the front and then when to let others lead. So I don't know if there's a good word for that, but it's super important. Yep. And if I could give a, like a really quick analogy for that one, there's another great book out there, extreme ownership, which is, uh, it's written by uh, a couple of Navy SEALs and they're talking about leadership in special forces teams. And so to me, there's no, it's not a coincidence that the military 
was the first to uh, run into a new networked world using an old school hierarchical system. Yeah. And they actually had to reinvent themselves in order to meet the threat of this crazy sort of ad hoc network world. And, uh, and the special forces is a great example of it. They're very much like an agile team that we've talked about. They assemble the team based upon our, uh, you know, different, uh, experiences and different abilities. So it's cross-functional. They're assigned a mission that have metrics attached to it, and then they design how they're going to execute the mission based upon their expertise. So the leadership aspect of that is even though those members of that team may have different ranks, that's not who leads in the moment. Who The person who leads in the moment is the one that has designed that part, that phase of the mission, has that expertise that is necessary. And so this is a fundamental skill, I believe, in leadership, is to be able to step down in the moment that you aren't the best equipped to lead. Yeah, and, and I, I will make a point on that. Um, you know, when we, we talked about earlier where business is heading and the type of uh, workforce that's coming in now, which is more empathetic and team-driven, um, I will say that it's so important what you say there, uh, a, a a leader, an old school leader, right? When we look at the older model of it is that person that'll stand up in front of everybody and lead them, right? And so today, of course, so important to be able to lead alongside others and even behind them at times, but so important to know when it is your time as a leader, because that is the goal of a, the point of a leader. You need to be able to stand up in front of that room and lead others if that's what the situation calls for. So great point there. Really great point. I yeah, I totally agree with you. And matter of fact, uh, when I was in one of my startups, I was on the management team, but I was not the CEO. And uh, and we would all do, we would have our company meetings, you know, 100 plus people, and we would all stand up and give our updates. And for some reason, I was the rah-rah guy. And I would be the one that stood up and said, we're going to go change the world. And I would come back, you know, from our little stage and people would sit there and go, dude, I've never seen that part side of you. Where did that come from? And I'm all like, I don't know. I don't know who that was. And actually, it was my emerging entrepreneur, to be honest. Amazing. It was my emerging leadership that I saw a moment and a need, and I was the guy to actually take it. And I, in some ways, I was sort of the CEO for a good year and a half during the growth phase of that company because that's where people rallied around that leadership. So I totally agree with you. And I think that there's something that can get lost in our – in the, in the valuable things that we talk about, vulnerability, admitting that I don't know, uh, empathy, that doesn't mean that it's soft or it's this or that. It, you have to – you're still responsible for you know, the hill that we're going to conquer. You're just willing to be wrong about how we get there. Yeah. But you're the one that's planting the flag up there going like this is where we're headed, people. Yeah. Love that. Um Three components. So uh, this may be a, a tough one to do, but I think we can pull it off. Three components of effective disruption. Listen, I'm gonna just get. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to. I have like my my five E's yeah. of disruption poetry. Right, empathy. So this is not doing what your customers say they want. It's understanding why they're saying what they're. And you don't even have to act on the empathy necessarily because you have to look at the market at, at, at whole. But customer insights and your competitive differentiation is going to come from how deeply you understand your customers. Experiments. 
So you gotta you gotta cut through the BS of your own assumptions. So there's this is a way to you for you to validate or invalidate your assumptions using evidence to make decisions or inform your decisions. So you're using insights and data to help you make the decisions, and and that cuts through your biases or what you you know your pet projects. Equilibrium, how we actually balance this execution that we have to do to hit our numbers in this learning mode so that we hit our numbers more efficiently or we hit our numbers in the future. And the final one is, the final E is ethics. We're gonna learn, we learn so much from our customers. We run these experiments. Um, we, you know, we need to, again, you know, move from the, the, the uh, wealth creation to the value creation. It's our responsibility to the, these customers and to society to act in an ethical way with our customers. And those five E's are going to not only lead us through this disruption; they're going to they're going to make you the differentiator. I think in in on um, what's on the other side of this massive change that we're going through. Yeah, Brent, three greatest failures to wrap it up. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> My marriage, um, <laughs> uh, the startup that. Uh, had some amount of you know other people's money in it that uh, I was not able to deliver a return on. Uh, boy, what's the third greatest failure? I guess my third greatest f- failure is, uh, you know, man, this one's really hard. Are when employees leave uh, upset, angry, I've let them down in some way. And I think that that's like, that's really, really hard. And that one hits really close to home. Yeah. Yeah. Love that, man. Brent Cooper, guys, thank you so much for being here, man. Uh, what a great conversation. I, I, I can't say enough how much I love talking shop with people like you. Uh, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. My side too. Really fun discussion. Uh, so happy to be here. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hang out two seconds. We'll talk after, uh, guys. You know what to do. Catch us every single Monday, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We get released Apple Podcast, uh, Pandora, Spotify, iHeart. You know the deal, guys. See you next week. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.